tried to commit suicide, it's like all I wanted was a fucking hug. And they're treating me like a caged animal that they don't know what to do with. And now they're going to lock them in a kennel. That's exactly how I felt. And it was so inhumane. I cannot believe how they treat people in hospitals. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. We certainly don't talk about it enough. When we do talk about it, many of us, including me, we are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. This is our final episode of 2022. I'm actually recording this On Christmas Day, I want to thank everybody who has been involved in this podcast. Those of you who listen, those of you who have joined me here on the podcast, and those of you who have supported us in myriad other ways, including financial contributions. Thank you. Now, if you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com, on Facebook or Twitter, at SuicideNoted, and check the show notes. There are additional ways you can reach out. You can learn a little bit more about our programs and presentations, ways to support and or sponsor the podcast. And you'll also see something about joining the movement. I will be announcing more about that soon with the goal of reaching more people in more places to help them feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. You know what we're all about. And finally, keep in mind, we are talking about suicide on this podcast. May not be a good fit for everybody. Please take that into account before or as you listen. But I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today I am talking with Angie. Angie lives in Hawaii and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey Angie. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. What great glasses you have. Those are fun. Oh, thank cool. you. <laughs> All right. Are you in Hawaii? Yes, I am. Am I allowed respectfully to have a moment of profound envy. Yes, you are. What what part of Hawaii are you in? I live in Honolulu. All right. Do you like it there? I love it. And in terms of mental health, obviously I have mental health issues, but you know, I used to live in Chicago and my mental health was a lot worse because it's like there's so much negative energy there and then just with the cold weather lasting for so yeah. long i cannot yeah. tell you what a difference it makes just it being sunny all the time like that makes a huge difference on my mental health yeah and awesome that you're aware obviously yeah very cool very cool okay and i like that we neither of us chose to wear sleeves today <laughs> i actually usually wear less like i usually wear like a sports bra or something and i'm like i need okay. to like look a little bit more presentable even though i know it's like <laughs> you like you don't present the zoom or anything i'm like right nobody's gonna see the video <laughs> i mean i'll send this to you if you want to use the video for something you can it's up oh to you. actually yeah i wouldn't mind that yeah sure uh but i'm staying in the podcast lane because videos are big and clunky and you know all that shit. Angie in the great state of Hawaii, in which you are the first person in that state who have, who has joined me here on this podcast. So that's kind of cool. What the hell are you doing talking about suicide, Angie? Nobody does this. I know. And that's really why I wanted to do it because one of my values is that I don't sweep things under the rug anymore. Oh, you know what the operative word there is for me? Any more. Yeah. What 
in the past. Uh, what happened in the past? We'll get to all the stuff, but we'll nonlinear this conversation. Yeah. So I definitely used to sweep things under the rug. Um, it was inherited from my family. That's how we operated. And so that's how I tended to operate in my life. And I didn't obviously realize this until hindsight um, when things came to a head and I hit rock bottom, but I was largely living my life inauthentically. And now I'm learning to live more authentically. And the reason I really like what you're doing is because, you know, nobody really wants to talk about these kinds of things. You know, like we all go through shitty things, but we're not talking about them. And I think talking about them just makes us not feel so alone. Because like even once I found your podcast, not that I'm happy that these people have gone through these things, but that was like the number one thing that I felt when I'm like listening to other people's experiences, even though we have totally different experiences, like we all like share like the common thing. We all go through shitty things, but we go through our Instagram feeds or even in real life, we're like all putting on our like happy faces and pretending everything's fine. So you would never know the kind of shit people go through because they're not talking about it like this. Mm-hmm. Well, I assume everyone's going through shit even when they're smiling, but that's, that's the kind of person I presume that starts a podcast like this, right? Right. Like I'm just like, I go, I play pickleball every other day and I'm playing ball. You know, of course you present like I, it would be weird if everyone on the pickleball courts or wherever you are is like, Hey, I got to tell you yesterday I was contemplating suicide. That would be a hard, that might, I get why that doesn't, that's not the yeah. like, main way of communicating, but I'm assuming yeah, yeah you're, pro- you're, you're fucking miserable. You're, you're, I just assume that maybe it's cause I'm from New York and maybe you played safe because you used to play it safe. Cause you're Midwestern. That's gotta be part of it. Yeah. So people make fun of me here because like in Chicago, like you have to wear a social mask because it's safe. Right. Especially being a female, like if I'm walking down the street alone, I don't want to look all warm and welcoming. So like you kind of get used to wearing a social mask. And in Hawaii, you're still a woman. Yeah. But like people make fun of me here because I'm like pretty hardcore for the local culture. (laughs) You're hardcore. Yeah. Like I still have my Chicago attitude. How long have you been there? Four years. Okay. You've heard the podcast? Yes. I am curious how it is that you found it. It was the consequence of going down the rabbit hole of Google. So my suicide attempt was two years ago, but Mm -hmm. I still have a lot of side effects. Like my sleep is still severely disturbed. I started perimenopause and like, I'm only 42, just like some other things. And I just started thinking like, this has to be a result of like the stress. I I truly think it's PTSD, but the problem is like when I'm Googling this, there's not a lot of information on suicide attempt survivors. Like if you Google suicide survivors, it's talking about the people who are left behind, which I get, they have grieving, they may have PTSD, but like, I couldn't find any information on suicide attempt survivors. So that made me even like more obsessive about like finding stuff. And that's how I came across your podcast. And to be honest, your podcast is really the only thing I could find on suicide attempt survivors. Isn't that amazing? Yes. And that's why I reached out to you because I'm like, we need to talk about this more. (laughs) When I say, isn't it amazing? Truly, I'm not saying, aren't I amazing? No, it's almost, I'm saying shame on others. It shouldn't be me that's doing this. I'm happy to do it. I love it actually in a weird way, but really, really. But no, I was shocked because it's like, so where do I go for information? Because it's like, there's no resources. They're out out there. There's just not nearly enough and you have to do it. 
sometimes it's muddled with other things like you know, this is a, this is for both lost survivors and attempt survivors like oh, those are kind of different things or yeah. this is for people like mental illness and so what is like oh i might not be mentally ill like, you know they're not it's not just dedicated to now two years ago you attempt last month you're searching for stuff yes. so one might wonder and you kind of hinted to, you, you alluded to this yeah, I'm still dealing with it. I still struggle. I'm still searching. I'm still figuring it out. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. And just not only because what I described to you that I'm still experiencing are physical symptoms, but I also experience like emotional symptoms. It's so hard to describe to people like what it felt right afterwards. Like the only word I can think is raw. I don't even know how to describe it. I guess it'd be like, if you didn't have skin or you had like a gazillion paper cuts all over your body and you had to go through your day like that, like mm. every little thing would be a struggle. Every little thing would be painful. And emotionally, like that's what it feels like afterwards. And I still have like a low grade feeling of that every day. And sometimes it gets bad. Like sometimes, like I just had a day last week and this doesn't happen as much anymore, but I had a day last week where I felt just as emotionally raw as I did two years ago after it happened. And that, I think that's what prompted me. I was like, this has to be something like other people have to feel like this. Yeah, they do. Not just like you feel, but there's something. Four years ago, you moved to Hawaii. You're in your late 30s. Age doesn't really matter, but a little bit. Two years ago, you tried. Was that your only attempt? So I did have another attempt. What year would have that have been? 2017. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, it wasn't, it was, I would say it was half-hearted. I took some pills, but in hindsight, I knew in my heart it wasn't enough to kill me. Now I'm going to ask a question that it's not so much that I shouldn't ask or I'm not allowed to ask, but I don't think it has an easy answer. And that is why did you take those pills? Even even if it was half-hearted, so to speak. I was just struck. So what had happened in early 2017 is that my boyfriend broke up with me. And that's just like the very high level explanation because it was a very like tumultuous, toxic, on and off, up and down type of relationship. So anyone who's been in that kind of situation knows the strain that it puts on your mental health. And that had like gone on for years and it was significantly bad, like the last two to four years, I would say. Mm -hmm. So I had all of that stress and then he left me for someone else. And then shortly thereafter, my dad passed away. I was just reeling from like those two significant losses at the same time. What happened right before that attempt is I went to this party and I ran into my ex and he took me home only to find out after he takes me home that he's still with the other person that he left me for. And I was just like so distraught that I felt like like I just couldn't even stand being in my own skin. I think the main thing I want to point out with both attempts was just like the sheer feeling of hopelessness. You know, I've been through shitty things and even in the aftermath of him breaking up with me and my dad dying. It's, but I still like had this hope like, oh, it will get better or, you know, like things have to get better than this. But it's like in those two attempts, it was just like the sheer hopelessness. Like I didn't feel like anything would get better. Yeah. That's it. Isn't it? I mean, how long can a human last if they feel that way? And that's just really? it because I I consider myself, and if you ask anyone who knows me, like I'm actually a really strong person, but it just gets to a point where you can't handle it sometimes. Yeah, you're not, no one's strong enough to do that for a long period of time. I don't yeah. Think. 
that's just my take. I, I obviously have some rather strong views on it. I'll be frank with you. I'm astounded that I'm going to say something that I'm probably going to get some nasty emails from. I'm astounded that there aren't more suicide attempts. And there's a lot. I am. There's so many people in pain. I'm not trying to overdo it and be like dramatic here or hyperbole. But what that speaks to for me is I think there's a lot of people who are very, very strong for just continuing to try to live. I agree. As best they can. And we know others will look at them and be like, well, you could get a better job or you don't even own your house or like you're still not in a relationship. Yeah. Dude, if you're going through stuff, I, I told you I wasn't going to be the Sean show, so I'm going to shut up. But it's just hard to get all that shit done when you're just trying to survive. I know. And it's funny that you say that because, and I notice this a lot, like on, I only go on Instagram and I try to limit my time, but there's still like a lot of negative comments. And I don't think people understand, like when you're really going through shit, sometimes that it's that one negative comment that can just like, it's a straw that broke the camel's back. So it's not necessarily that that comment was so bad, but it's just like, if you're in a really bad emotional state that day and you're dealing with all this other stuff, like sometimes it's like, I just can't handle this one more person saying something shitty. Mm. And that's like another thing I've been noticing about myself in the past two years is like, I'm trying so hard just to be a good person because I never want to be the person who wants to make someone else kill themselves. You know what I mean? I don't think people really understand like how their actions are really impacting other people. Fair. So 2017, you were in Chicago. Yes. May I ask why Hawaii? It's kind of a long story. So I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. I had a friend who lived here. I think it was like six or seven years, but that was like maybe 2007 to 2012 or 13. And I would visit her every year. And obviously it's an amazing place. It's beautiful. And every year she was like, you need to move here. You need to move here. But I had all these limiting beliefs as to why I couldn't move there. Um, I would have to make new friends. I didn't have enough money. Um, I was in that shitty relationship, but I always use that as an excuse. Finally, I worked up the courage. I'm like, okay, I'm going to move there. But then she moved away. So then Mm -hmm. I didn't have the courage to do it on my own. So I really contributed to my dad passing away because he was only 63. And that was a reminder to me that life is too short to not do what you want to do. So I was already making these other changes in my life. Like, again, like being a better person, because after the breakup, that was a good time for me because I was able to separate the forest from the trees and see the role that I was playing in the dysfunction. So I was like doing things to work on myself and be a better person. So Mm -hmm. it kind of like moving to Hawaii was like all part of my journey to improving my life. Now, as I talk to you here, I'm looking at a woman, I'm thinking, all right, it seems to be working out, whatever that means. But you know, if you've listened to the podcast, there's a lot of butts in my conversations, B-U-T, I'm not getting weird. Two years ago, you're living in Hawaii. You've been there for a year or two. Mm-hmm. Nice place, Honolulu, beautiful sun, ocean, the serious attempt. So what's going on in your life that you ultimately decide to attempt to take your life? It is a culmination of things. Right. So, well, first of all, moving here, it is obviously paradise, but moving here, from Chicago to Hawaii in your late 30s is not easy. First of all, it's a huge culture change, huge. Like I won't even go into all the nuances, but there were like things that I didn't even think of. Um, So just like the culture differences. When I moved here, I obviously did not have friends. 
you know, when I lived in Chicago, I made friends everywhere I went, like the gym, yoga, even places like Trader Joe's or, you know, just random places. So here I was like, oh, once I start going to the gym and start doing things, I'll make all these friends. But it was not happening. Uh, the culture is a little bit different now after COVID because there are more like remote workers and transplants. But at the time that I moved here, Hawaii wasn't very transplant friendly. So as a white girl from the mainland, I wasn't totally welcome. Everybody's already in their cliques. So they're not like totally eager to welcome me. Another part of that, and I'm not, I'm not dissing the local culture because they're not that totally that dismissive, but another part of moving here, a lot of people don't last here. They say the average person who moves here only lasts about a year before they move back. And I've experienced this now as a long timer, you're hesitant to make friends with people who are new because it's like, I don't want to make this friend and then they leave and then I'm sad and whatever. So it's like, if you just assume someone's a short timer, you really don't want to invest in them. So anyway, long story short, I had a really hard time making friends and I didn't know anyone else here. So that's obviously very isolating and lonely for myself to prove that I was committed to moving here and staying here, I bought a condo immediately, which anyone who's bought a home knows that just buying a home in general can be stressful, but buying a home in like a new state or a different place is obviously very stressful. A month after I closed on my condo, it flooded a shared pipe in my building backflowed into my bathroom sink and I was not home and my entire condo flooded. So I wasn't even acclimated to living here. And then I had to deal with a flood. I didn't know people here. So it was just really stressful for me to like find the help that I needed. Um, I was having a lot of job stress. So I kept my job when I moved here and I work remote now. Um, but at the time that I moved, we were going through a lot of like management cleanup, so to speak, because like a year or so prior, we got a new CEO and he was just like cleaning up house in terms of layers of management. And I was reporting up through a layer of management that was like slowly getting chipped away for like a year and a half. I was certain that I was going to get laid off. And again, this is before COVID. So I have like a decent paying job. I'm working remote. Local jobs don't pay well at all. So I'm like, if I lose my job, I'm screwed because there's no other opportunities. At that time, there were no other opportunities or maybe very, very few to have a well-paying remote job, especially in Hawaii, because I'm on a like totally different, like I mainly work on Chicago time, which is right now five hours behind mainland time. And I was trusted at my current job. But like, how can I prove if I'm interviewing for a job, how can I prove that I can be like trusted working in this different time zone? What else? Oh, my grandma died um, shortly after I moved here Um, and she was in her early 90s, but she was my last surviving grandparent. And because my other three grandparents died considerably earlier in my life, I was the closest to her. I did make a really good friend here. I took an improv class and I made some friends. And one of my friends in the improv class, we became super close friends. Um, unfortunately he became very toxic. I won't get into that, but basically he didn't have boundaries and that was like really stifling for me. And the good thing is I was at a point in my life where it's like, I cannot tolerate people like this. It's like, I had this really good friend and not a lot of other good friends. And I had to like, let that friendship go. So Mm. that was really hard for me. There's like other little things, but this is like the main buildup. So then we get to the beginning of 2020. So COVID in March, 2020, 
their, the stay at home order was instituted. So the beaches were closed, parks were closed, hikes were closed. And it's like the entire reason I moved here was to like enjoy nature and to like have basically have a life outside of work because in Chicago, it's a very like hustle culture. Like I didn't really do a lot of fun things except on the weekends. So here it's like, I want to go to the beach after work. I want to go hiking after work. All of that was taken away. So there was like the uncertainty and the stress of COVID. My childhood home was very lonely and disconnected. Um, My parents did not get divorced until I went to college, but they should have because their marriage was very loveless. Um, My dad was extremely emotionally unavailable. He was a passive alcoholic. My mom was also very emotionally unavailable. She was concerned with like running the household and like making sure, which we were physically cared for, my sister and I, but we were not emotionally supported. So I grew up with like these beliefs, like I'm not important. I don't deserve to be loved. And then I also just always had this feeling of like disconnectedness because my family, we were just like disconnected strangers living under the same house. So back to COVID, these like social restrictions and isolation just really reminded me of my childhood and being helpless around it. Because as an adult prior, if I felt disconnected or lonely, I could always socialize or do something about it. But during COVID, there wasn't anything I could do. And there was so much uncertainty, like how long is this going to last? The one thing that was open during COVID was the ocean because the state doesn't have jurisdiction to close the ocean. So I'm like, okay, this is my way to legally enjoy being in nature. The problem was like, I wasn't really an ocean person. I had taken surfing lessons the summer before, but I really didn't know how to surf. So I texted the gentleman who had given me surfing lessons the summer before. I will call him Ozzy. That is not his real name, but I recently published a book. It's called Running in Slippers about this journey. That's what I call him in the book. So I will call him Ozzy. So I texted Ozzy in March, 2020. And I'm like, hey, can you give me surfing lessons during COVID so I can be in the ocean. He was down. So the first time I met with him, he told me that, so his wife was from New Zealand and he told me that she had recently moved back to New Zealand because of COVID. So at the time that seemed reasonable because like they had closed all their borders. So it did seem like a safe place to go. If you're from New Zealand to go back, seemed logical. So anyway, Ozzy and I are surfing together during COVID And we eventually became friends. When we were friends, he confided that the reason that she had moved back to New Zealand is because they were separated. And when she came back, uh, he said that he didn't know when she was coming back, but he led me to believe that they were getting divorced, going their separate ways, blah, blah, blah. The relationship turns romantic. And it seemed okay to me because he was leading me to believe that their marriage was over and would be finalized when she came back home. The one thing I really want to set up about this story is, again, this is during COVID. The only thing there really is to do is surf. So not only are we surfing together, but we like, because we were friends initially before we became lovers, like we're basically spending every day together. Like we're going out to eat, like we're hanging out. The only other people I'm seeing in person is I had three girlfriends. Uh, We would work out together on Friday mornings. I'm normally not the kind of person to invest this much in another person because, um, first of all, I just kind of like time alone to recharge. I'm kind of just kind of like that. But another thing about him was I felt 
emotionally safe to be like 100% authentic. And he accepted me for who I was, which is something I have not received a lot in my life because we were talking about mask earlier. And I felt like I always had to like wear a mask or be a certain way around people, but I could be myself. So it like felt authentic and I didn't really need the time to recharge. So in hindsight, I really made the mistake of like investing so much time in him because he was so ingrained in my daily schedule. And obviously like I was in love with him too. Six months into this bliss, his wife comes home and that's when he reveals to me that she has a green card, but they need to be married on paper for two more years for her to get her citizenship. He proposed a plan to me to be married on paper to her and be in a relationship with me. So this was obviously very shocking because, well, first of all, in that moment, even though I considered him my best friend, I realized how manipulative his language had been up to that point to lead me to believe that they were getting divorced um, when that was actually not the case at all. And I realized he had been manipulative in his language for a conversation like that. Cause he knew that conversation would have to come eventually when she came home. But this is like where it all started going downhill. So because I had like done the work on myself after the other relationship, I now have the self-worth to say, you know, I basically don't want to be your side chick, but he didn't respect that boundary. I didn't enforce it. So he still kept pursuing me and I let him come around. So I take accountability because I should have enforced the boundary But on the other hand, there's like a part of me that I really have compassion for because again, this is COVID. This is my best friend. He was like ingrained in my daily routine. And it's like for me to like give up that connection would like would have destroyed me. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to like hold on to it, even though it's like in this no man's land that goes on for about a month, but it was really taxing on my mental health, obviously, basically because I wasn't being authentic to myself. I didn't realize that until hindsight. But anyway, he sends me a text out of the blue one day that he can't see me anymore with like no explanation. That was just devastating to me. So again, like we have like this buildup. I basically had like three years of just shit being handed to me and like obstacle after obstacle. Cause again, like moving here did not solve all my problems. It just kind of like brought on more for like a week. It was just like, I was a walking zombie And it was exactly the week afterwards. So at the time, and I left this part out, I was taking, I had medication for my anxiety. It was a controlled substance. It's basically a nervous system suppressant. And it's so strong that I would only take a half pill before I went to bed because a half pill would knock me out all night. In this week, I'm taking like a pill, one whole pill every night, which is a lot for me. But after about a week, I just... Again, like I kind of had reached my point where it's like, I'm a strong person, but I just can't do this anymore. And I remember it was a Friday afternoon around four o'clock and I had two pill bottles left in my old pill bottle. And I had just refilled a new bottle like the week before. So I had 30 new pills in the other bottle. So it's like four o'clock on Friday afternoon. I'm concentrating on the two pill bottle, two pills in the remaining bottle. And I'm like, if I just take these two pills, it'll knock me out for like 12 hours. And maybe if I just have a good night's sleep, I'll feel better when I wake up. So I take the two pills at like 4 PM, but then I wake up at like 11 PM 
Like, I just remember I like ran to the bathroom and threw up. In addition to like just feeling physically nauseous, it's just like these overwhelming feelings of like, I don't deserve to be loved. I'm not important. And again, like we talked about this earlier, it was like just the sheer hopelessness because it's like my life had been such a struggle for the past three years. And then like I had this bright light, it was taken away from me. And it's like, things are never going to get better. And I was like having feelings of like, I really fucked up by moving to Hawaii because I like thought I was going to have this better life and it's not working out at all. I just felt like so many things were so much worse than they were in Chicago. And it was like, almost like I was just on autopilot. Like I remember walking to my cabinet where the new, like the refilled pill bottle was with the 30 pills, because again, like a half pill would knock me out cold all night. So I'm like 30 entire pills would kill me. Like I was certain. So I grabbed the pill bottle and I remember the side, the warning on the side said, do not mix with alcohol. So I took a shot of NyQuil and I have tequila in my freezer. I took two shots of tequila to like ensure that it was mixed with alcohol. And then I took the pill bottle to my bathroom and I brought a water bottle with me and I brought a pillow and blanket for my bed and I put it in the shower. And I remember I dumped the pills on the counter. The entire pile seemed like a lot to swallow at once. So I remember I divided them up into two piles. I remember I hesitated out of fear because I was afraid. What if I have a heart attack or what if something like painful or scary happens before I lose consciousness? But I was just willing to take that risk because I was like, I'll probably, I was just confident that I would go pretty quickly. Took pile one, took a swig of water, took pile two, took a swig of water. And I went to the shower with my pillow and blanket. And it's funny in hindsight, because I used to watch a lot of murder mystery shows and I would like to solve the crime before the show did. And I don't know if you know anything about this, but if the killer covers the victim, even if it's just their face, that means that they knew them. I think it's some kind of like psychological form of respect. So it's funny because in hindsight, Like when I sat down in the shower, when I lay down in the shower, like I covered myself, like even my, I remember I covered my head with my blanket. Mm -hmm. And the reason I remember that is because I just remember the sound of my breathing was so heavy. Again, I was like waiting for something scary to happen before I blacked out. But it's like, just like you don't remember the second before you fall asleep. Like I don't remember blacking out. I probably only took a few minutes and there was no pain or discomfort. The next thing I remember is waking up, like my eyes popped open and it was morning, but I was so fucked up from the pills. But all I could remember is that I was supposed to be dead. And I like panicked because I was alive. And I like shot up from my lying position, tried to like stand up, but I was so fucked up that like I couldn't even stand up or walk. So I just kind of stumbled to my bed. And I blacked out again. And my friend Kelly had to fill me in on what happened. But she told me that I like texted her, but it was kind of like mumbo jumbo text. Like it wasn't a clear text, but I had texted her that I took too much of my anxiety medication. So she kept trying to call me and I eventually answered the phone and she could tell that I was like really fucked up. And I do remember like talking to her on the phone. I just don't remember what we said. I have like a memory of being in her car. And the reason I remember that is because I was just like staring at the dashboard because I couldn't like move or focus or anything. And then the next thing I remember is um, waking up in the emergency room and having all the like wires and stuff attached to my chest. Wow. Is that all in your book too? Yeah, this is all in my book. <laughs> 
you attempt, you live, obviously you're here. You're in the hospital. Were you in a hospital for people who are physically sick or a different kind of hospital? That's a good question. So I'm in a regular hospital and I'm in the emergency room. I am extremely high and I'm extremely emotional because I'm feeling everything I'm feeling Mm -hmm. right before I took the pills. Now I have a new host of problems right, right? and I have like that extremely raw feeling that I was describing before. And I just physically feel like shit. Oh, that was another thing. I was so hungry and I didn't know what time it was, but I was like, I took the pill. I didn't eat. I, the last time I remembered eating was like Friday afternoon. So I was like, oh, it's been at least 24 hours since I've eaten. So there was a nurse stationed beside me because I was on suicide watch and I was like in and out of consciousness the entire time I'm in the ER. But every time I woke up, I asked her for crackers, which I felt like was a reasonable request for a hospital because I didn't know what else they would have. But every time I woke up, she didn't bring me crackers. So I would ask her again. And like, I'm not even exaggerating. That might've happened 10 times because like I was so in and out of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So finally this other woman walks in and she's like, oh, so how's it going? So again, I'm emotional from the shit I was dealing with before. I'm raw, I'm high, and I'm hangry. I totally went off on her. I was like, I've asked for crackers like 10 fucking times, and she hasn't brought me crackers, and I just start going off on this woman. So unfortunately, she's the woman who's in charge of deciding what to do with me next, because you can't stay in the emergency room Oh, 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 Angie, I know where this is going. They admitted me to the psych ward. I remember when she told me, like I would, again, like I was so emotional. They knew I tried to commit suicide. It's like, all I wanted was a fucking hug. And they're treating me like a caged animal that they don't know what to do with. And now they're going to lock them in a kennel. That's exactly how I felt. And it was so inhumane. And I will never forget that feeling for as long as I live. I cannot believe how they treat people in hospitals. And so they admit me to the psych ward. I still cannot stand on my own. Like when they transport me and well, and I had to take a urine sample before I went to the psych ward. Like I couldn't even pee by myself. Like that's how incapacitated I was. So they just dumped me off at the psych ward with no medical attention. And I have a private room. There's truly crazy people in there. So like I go to bed with the sounds of like people screaming. It was like horrific. Like, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Like, I don't even know how they consider that like a mentally sound place for anybody. It's so institutional. It cannot be good for anyone's mental health. When you woke up from that period of time to the period of time, I guess, where you just you're in that psych ward and it's not a good place. Are you still thinking like, I really don't want to be alive? Oh, absolutely. From the bathtub to when you get put in this shithole of a quote unquote, psych mental health unit. Is it a day? Is it 12 hours? Is it an hour? Well, there's a plot twist to this story. Um, Why am I not surprised? I took the pills on Friday evening. Yes. I woke up and it was morning. Saturday morning. Well, that's what I thought. Oh, plot twist time. I'm in the emergency room. I think it's Saturday. Uh I spend the night at the psych ward. I wake up in the psych ward. um, They finally release me. So I think it's Sunday afternoon. They release me. And this is COVID. I don't know if all hospitals were doing this. They did not let me wear my own clothes out of the hospital. They gave me, I don't know if people donate clothes. I have no idea what clothes these were. They just gave me some clothes to change into. And then they gave me two plastic bags that had my clothes and my purse. The next thing I remember Standing on the curb of the hospital, 
with my two plastic bags. I'm barefoot. They didn't even return my slippers and I have no ride home. Oh my God. Oh my God. And like, cause I had surgery when I lived in uh, Chicago, I had surgery at Northwestern hospital. They will not discharge you until they call your ride, talk to your ride personally, and they walk you out to your ride's car and make sure you get in the car and leave. So they just basically dumped me on the curb. I'm high as shit, barefoot, and no ride home. And in the psych ward, their resistance to letting me leave is because, well, we just want to make sure that you're safe. It's, so, it, it's such bullshit. Yeah. So, such bullshit. so to your point, so I'm standing on the curb and all I can think is I just want to die because of the way they treated me. Cause I was like, I don't want to be here. Like, look how they're like, it's just, it was reinforcing my beliefs of like, I don't deserve to be loved. I'm not important because they're just treating me like a dog to like check off all their boxes for their bureaucracy bullshit. They don't mm-hmm. care about me. I turn on my phone to order an Uber and my phone starts blowing up with text. So I'm just, and I'm still high. So I'm just kind of like scrolling through and my friend Kahea had texted me. She was hosting a zoom workshop. I'm like, oh, I need to tell her that I can't go to this workshop tonight. So I open up her text and they were from the day before. And she's like, you didn't tell me you couldn't come to the workshop. Are you okay? And I'm like, what is she talking about? The the workshop is tonight. And then my most recent series of texts were from my esthetician. I had an appointment. I get my eyelashes tinted and lifted. Me too. And (laughs) And I had an appointment with her Monday afternoon. So hers text were from just like an hour before. She's like, are you okay? Are you not coming? And I was like, yeah, we do Mondays, remember? And that's when I looked at my phone and saw that it was Monday. Mm -hmm. And I just remember in that moment, I like sobered up. Like, do you ever have that moment? Like if you're drunk and you like sober up really quick because something happens. Like Mm -hmm. I had that moment because that's when I realized the day I woke up was Sunday which means that I was unconscious in my shower for a day and a half. Right. And that's when I was like, I truly skirted death. Right. Yes. Yes. It sounds like that. Now, okay. Two years ago, you get out and we know that just because you're out of the hospital doesn't magically make things better. Sometimes it gets worse because of some of the things you've described. So let's assume that eventually you make make your way home, probably in the same home I'm looking at right now, right? This is your home. In the last two years, have you been, however you define the word, ideating with any regularity? Maybe I'm going to do it again. Maybe I'm going to try. To specifically answer that question, no. And I hate to admit it. It's only because the risk of surviving is so horrible that I would never put myself through that again. There have been times where I'm like, I wish I were not here for sure. Some people will view this as a rather dark question, but if at some points in your life that you're describing, I had a magic wand and said, you're going to go to sleep, you're not going to wake up, you're not going to be in pain, and you're going to die. It sounds like there would be moments where you would have said, I'll take that deal. Absolutely. Do you feel that way right now? Not right now. Might you feel that way in the future? Absolutely. All right. Got it. A lot of the times when I ask people about what they're going through and what they imagine the future might be like. Once they've attempted, more times than not, there's this sort of almost sense of, I don't have the, I don't know the word, humility or something where it's like, you know what? Yeah. I'm not guaranteeing shit. Yeah. This might turn dark, but like, because I live on the 20th floor. So some, and I, someone did commit suicide here like 
a year ago, they jumped out either their balcony or something. But I think, what if I survived? Then I would yeah. have all kinds of problems. I might have brain damage, like oh, yeah. I'd be in um, a body cast. Angie, just want to let you know something. If you're 20 floors up, it's not a maybe. If you live, you will have fuckloads of problems. Now, I'm never telling people what to do and they in don't survive case. 20 floors unless you're literally landing on a massive batch of marshmallows. You I don't know. Gonna- I'm shocked that I survived. Even my friend Kelly, who took me to the hospital, she was shocked that I survived She because she was researching the pills that I took when I was in the hospital. Yeah, and yeah. she was like, I thought you were going to die. So I just feel like there's always a chance. <laughs> do you think that one of the reasons or perhaps the reason you survived was any kind of sort of divine supernatural intervention, if you will? I do. When I got out of the hospital, so my friend Kahea, initially I wasn't going to tell her exactly what happened, but when I called her, I was like, I was in the hospital and she was like, oh, what happened? And like, I just said, like, I took too much of my anxiety med- medication. I like kept it very general and high level. But then she was like, just really sarcastically and jokingly, she was like, well, don't try to kill yourself. Again, I'm in this very raw emotional state. So I just had like a total breakdown and started crying. And I was like, that's what I was trying to do. And I told her the whole story. And at the end of the story, I was like, I can't believe I didn't die. Her response was, it's not your time. And it gave me chills. That was like a big reason why I wrote the book, because even on the days that I don't want to be here, I feel like there is a reason that I'm here. So on the days that I'm feeling good, I want to make the most of my time here and hopefully impact other people positively. How are you feeling today? I feel like 50-50 only because it's hard to talk about this. So like, no offense to you, but no offense to you. You know, it's just like talking about it, like just re-brings up all the feelings. I remember feeling the hopelessness. I remember the rawness. Those memories of those feelings will never go away. Yeah. What are your bad days like? So like if it's a day I have to work, I'll just muscle through it. And then I usually have like an emotional breakdown in the evening. But there was like a weekend recently. So I wasn't working. It was one of those days where it's like, I do not want to be here. And I went to a park by the ocean. I call it my power place. It's just this really like magical feeling park. And I just went there and like cried in the grass for like three hours. (laughs) What kind of work do you do? I work in IT, but my role is finance. If this gets a little dark or uncomfortable, you'll tell me, okay? Okay. The main reason I do this is I know people out there might be feeling similarly. When you talk about hopelessness, for you, how do I want to frame this? I, I'm, I'm going to ask things that are about external stuff, when I, and I know it's really more about internal stuff. Yeah. What's your life look like, and it doesn't feel hopeless? Ooh, that's, I like that question. I think one of the main struggles I have now with hopelessness is because like in the past two years, like I've done all of this inner work on that. I don't need the external validation. I don't need a relationship to validate me. I don't need the money to validate me. But on the other hand, I'm still attracting shitty friends. Like I worked so hard on my book and now I'm at the marketing phase and like, I'm a finance and operations person and I'm not a marketing person. So it's like, now I'm in the struggle of marketing the book. And I just kind of feel like my life is not progressing. It's like, I'm doing all this work, but I don't really see anything happening externally. 
And that becomes frustrating for me because it's like, if I have a purpose, what is it? Because I don't feel like I'm fulfilling it right now. Your friend said that it wasn't your time. Mm -hmm. So when I hear that, I do hear there's a purpose. If you're embracing what she's saying. Yeah. That doesn't mean you know what it is. That's true. And I thought about that before because I thought it was the book. Prior to the suicide attempt, I had wanted to write a book, but I was like in this wishy-washy phase, not wanting to put myself out there. But then afterwards, it's kind of like, I have absolutely nothing to lose. I felt the book was my purpose, but now I'm like, that might not be it. <laughs> Isn't it hard to write a book about this stuff? Oh, Any, yeah. Anyway, I'm actually trying to do a couple things. Nonfiction is just very, very hard. Yeah. It's your own stuff is very, very hard. Kudos to you for just sitting your ass down, <laughs> writing it and editing it, because it's a, it's a lot of fucking work. I know that. Yeah. All right. How many people know that you tried to end your life two years ago? Prior to publishing the book, three. Now it's out there for anyone to read. The entire book is extremely vulnerable um, because not only what I've told you today, I go into more detail, but just other things. I really struggled with that. Um, But people were like, oh, you can use a pen name. And I'm like, no, this book is about being authentic. And I would never do that. I would rather not write the book than use a pen name. What if I told you right now my real name was Charles Schnitzelstein? I would lose respect for you. <laughs> okay, it's not. <laughs> That's all right. A lot of people lose respect for me every fucking day. We're good. <laughs> now nah, it's my name. I'm really bald. I'm really in North Carolina. How many people do you have in your life to talk to? But hang on, there's more. N- not not just about picnics and rainbows. Uh, and when you're in it or after, you feel not worse. I have one person that I would feel safe talking to. Like the kind of conversation where you're just, you're in it, it feels okay. They're listening, whatever, you know, whatever that looks like. Right. Even of the people who read my book, who didn't previously know about the attempt. I mean, I'm, and I'm talking about friends, like people who know me, most people didn't even mention the attempt. They're like, Oh, it was a good book. They mentioned a few other things. Isn't that something? Yeah. And I had one friend who mentioned it. This this might be a controversial statement. I had one friend who did bring up the attempt, mm. but the way she brought it up mm. was like she would be heartbroken if anything ever happened to me. Sure. And if I ever needed anyone to call, if I'm down, I could call her. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know her intention. And this is another reason why I like speaking about it, because as the receiver of that, as a attempt survivor, it just Mm -hmm. sounds so selfish because it's like, you want me to be around because I'm like suffering and in so much pain because it would make you feel better. And you think a 10 minute phone call with a friend is going to cure all that. Like, it just Mm -hmm. sounds so minimizing to me. Yeah. Among other things. One of the books that I'm trying to write, when, when I say trying to write, by the way, if you actually just saw my doc and me like, this dude has no chance of finishing this fucking thing. Like, it, no, no, like my but, book initially was like a hundred word documents. The thing that I like want to write about, and also in part, because I want to talk more about it, right? Uh, on my public, in public spaces, not just this, not just this, right? Is just what you're talking about is the person in our lives, the people in our lives who let's assume really mean well but there's that disconnect. Oh, you're saying this thing. I'm not going to talk to you about this anymore. And I don't think often they realize it. You're not getting it. You say the thing. I know you mean well, but I feel like shit. 
And it's not just on me. So that space is very interesting to me. I think that's where a lot of the, there's just, that's just a massive fucking problem. I totally agree. To your point, it's like, I can never, ever call her if I'm like down or whatever, because she doesn't get it. (laughs) Right. Right. And then, so, and I I don't know if this is your experience. It's, oh, okay. You're probably out for that stuff. You're probably out. The numbers go down. And now we have one person to talk to. Mm Mm-hmm. Probably not enough. I mean, one is something. One sometimes yeah. is the difference. It's just not a lot. And I'm not saying that to make you feel like shit. It's just, it's fact. No. Well, and I've, as part of like bettering my mental health, I've cleaned up a lot of friends. So I don't have a lot of friends left to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm part of the reason why I don't have a lot of yeah. close people to talk to. What does the one friend who you can talk to, how does he or she engage with you? that is good, that works, that makes you feel okay? Because he's an empathetic listener, I can talk and he, because this is a problem with a lot of people, like you call or you're maybe you're in person with the intention of just venting and them listening, but then they're like, oh, you should do this. You should do Mm -hmm. that. And when you're like in the moment, it's just like, it's just so overwhelming because it's like, I'm already feeling all these things and now you're telling me what to do. And it's like, I just want to, hug and cry. <laughs> Are you going to make it to 50? Ooh, probably. You think you'll be living in Hawaii? Probably. Like after living here, I already know like I could never live on mainland America. So if I move somewhere else, it would be out of the country. What's one thing that helps when you're feeling shitty? So I have started like connecting to like better people. So I think, again, it's like the sense of hope. Like I can surround myself with better people. My book is my baby. So even though I hate the marketing aspect of it, like some days like that gets me going. Honestly, like being in Hawaii, like I go surfing almost every day. The ocean is extremely therapeutic. Um, Just being in the sun, being in nature, or like I said, like that park that I love. It's yeah, just like yeah. something magical about the atmosphere here that's very healing. When you say surfing, you mean body or board? Board. How long did it take you to stand on and actually surf? Because again, I learned during COVID. So I was, I've been consistent from the beginning because it was the only thing to do during COVID. It took me three months of consistent practice to actually be able to stand up. And that's just the beginning because it's such a hard technical sport. Yeah. It looks impossible actually. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that keeps me going. It's just like, even like pro surfers probably still have something that they're working on because there's just so much you can do with surfing. So it's just like the challenge of like always learning something more with surfing. I think that has contributed a lot to my positive mental health. Yeah. Of the three people who knew before the book, are any of those people your family that knew before? No. And my mom didn't find out until she read the book. What'd she say? She was upset that I didn't tell her, understandably. The reason I didn't tell her, though, is because my mom is very enmeshing and it feels more like control and stifle than love. Mm -hmm. The way I was feeling afterwards, I didn't have the emotional capacity to deal with that. The reason I didn't want to tell her is because, as we were talking before, like now there are people who will bring it up. And I don't necessarily always have the capacity to talk about it. And like, basically every time I've talked to my mom, since she read the book, she'll bring it up. 
without checking if I have the emotional capacity for it. So there's, there's like a whole host of issues with my mom, basically. <laughs> that's, that's a whole separate podcast. So, that's called a mom noted podcast. <laughs> Do you think that you will listen to this conversation when it comes out? I think so. Does anyone know we're having this conversation in your life? Not yet, but I've challenged myself to put it out there. Mm. Like once it's broadcast, if someone is interested in this conversation, they'll enjoy the book. Cause it, again, it goes into like way more detail than we covered here. And I think it's more of the emotional aspect too, because I think that's the part that people don't understand and what leads them to be like, Oh, you can just call me when you're down. Mm. Cause they don't really understand, which on one part I get, because if you haven't been through it yourself, you don't understand. Yeah. Because and another thing about my book, and I'm not trying to like totally plug my book, there she goes. But, <laughs> but a lot of my book is I give voice to my critical inner voice. So as I go through life, it's like, even if something good is happening, my critical inner voice is like, Oh, but you're not important. You shouldn't be doing this. And people don't yeah. understand how that piles up in your life and contributes. Oh, man to your mm. negative mental health. And it's so funny because my experience is obviously very unique, but there's so many universal experiences in the book. And I cannot believe how many people have told me like, and I'm talking like 60 year old men and like young Ooh. women are like, your book is so relatable. And it's right. like, because we all go through these experiences, but nobody really talks about them enough. And, or talks about them in ways that we might be able to relate. Cause sometimes it's more than just spilling it all out. That's a start. But if you take the time to write a book or something else, yeah, I think I imagine you're, I'm not sure what my point is. I only have a couple more questions. And then of course you can add anything else you want. Are there any myths that you would like to dispel? I think just the myth, like I think some people it's like, oh, if someone attempted suicide, they're just sad or they're just depressed. Again, I don't think people stand what an emotional black hole because I've been in down times where it's like, okay, in a week, it'll be better. Or even in a few months and I can like, I'm strong enough to like withstand the next few months until it gets better. But when you're in that sheer hopelessness and you have zero emotional capacity for anything, it's like you truly don't feel that you can handle life. Sometimes pe people just need a hug, even if they're not like overtly saying that to you. What else would you like to share about any of this stuff? Just that I love that you're doing this because again, going back to the beginning, there's not a lot of material for suicide attempt survivors. Yeah. And me personally, I appreciate not feeling so alone in what I've gone through and what I continue to go through. Mm, yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for joining me. As you know, this is not a video podcast, so people won't see you. But if you <laughs> were to see Angie, she's got these kind of cool, big frames, nice frames, kind of dangly earrings. And if, yeah. I, if I saw correctly, a couple different colors on the nails. Oh, yeah. I'm like into nail art. <laughs> you're, you're not conservative, we might say. I don't think. Correct. In that respect. I don't know about that. <laughs> you're like a, you're, you, you make a statement. I make a statement. That's cool. Well, thanks again. Uh, hope your day is decent. Never know how to end these. So we'll just end it and I'll say thanks and I'll connect with you soon. Cool? Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Have a good day. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Angie 
out in Hawaii. Thank you, Angie. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you would like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com, on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted, and check the show notes for other ways you can contact us, learn more about supporting or sponsoring the podcast, our programs and presentations, and stay tuned for our new membership. You can join the movement. That'll be coming up very soon as we enter 2023. And before I say goodbye, really, again, a huge thanks, a ginormous thanks to everybody who has been involved in this podcast, however you're involved, not only in 2022, but since we launched in July of 2020. Thank you. And that is all for episode number 140, the final episode of 2022. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.